I'm Michael McKay, the CEO of Intelligence Fusion, and welcome to this episode of The Insight. Please like, share, and subscribe. This episode, we are once again looking at the US election. However, this time we've applied an intelligence principle called IPB, or Intelligence Preparation of the Battle Space, to the event in order to better understand how the security situation and business environment might be impacted by the election and its outcome. I'm joined this week by Daniel Harrington, our Chief Operating Officer as well as our senior regional analysts, Vincent Fevrier and Matt Pratton. In this episode, we've created numerous graphics and charts to supplement our research and analysis. So Matt, first of all, as somebody who's ex-military intelligence, can you just explain to us what is the IPB process? Sure. So IPB is a four-stage process that a lot of Western military uh, intelligence units will utilise to essentially assess what could possibly happen in a given situation slash mission. And it essentially goes through four stages of looking at the environment, assessing the environment's effects, then looking at the threat or threats within that within that uh, set geographic area or environment, and then assessing what courses uh, of action could occur from all those from all those considerations. Pretty much, it's taking uh, a set area and with a set situation and figuring, uh, doing a snapshot of pretty much everything that is possibly known about uh, about it and figuring out what a threat could uh, could possibly do in that uh, in that set area and situation thanks very much matt so since the last podcast there are a variety of things that have changed so trump got covid-19 and recovered there's been the hunter biden leaks we've also seen um, violence that has not escalated but we have seen fatalities linked to violence there's been accusations against social media companies who have been um um, preventing people from sharing links to the Hunter Biden t- um, leaks, as an example. We've also seen reports of ballot fraud, and there's questions about whether or not um, President Trump will actually accept the results of the election due to his, perce- his perception that there's actually going to be widespread fraud conducted. And we will probably see significant litigation post-election. Um, so moving on through the IPB process and looking at step one, which is defining the environment, what we used was A-Scope PMESI for this. Now, A-Scope stands for areas, structures, capabilities, organizations, people, and events, and represents broad categories that are constant for every operational environment. Now, conversely, PMESI um, covers the variables that change by location, and together they help us to get a greater understanding of the problem. So we look first of all at political, and we're going to look at the actual areas. So looking back at 2016 and the Trump versus Clinton election, now Trump saw greater levels of support in both the Midwest and South. Hillary Clinton, in comparison, she saw most of her support on the coasts, both the West and East Coast. There were pockets of increased support for both candidates in other heartlands. However, that is generally how it looked in terms of the election map. Now, I don't expect that to change in this election. I think Trump should retain his core support base, and Biden will also likely see greater levels of support on the coasts. Now, there's a variety of states that analysts are actually predicting Donald Trump will need to retain in order to retain the presidency. And key issues are things like his handling of COVID-19, the security situation, as well as the fallout from the George Floyd killing and the economy. 
And these states are Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Now, if we look at a map, which we'll bring up on the screen, um, and can actually show you where President Trump has traveled to in the past few weeks since he got and recovered from COVID-19. So these are his future rallies. Um, and you can see the in the last part of the campaign, Trump is heavily targeting the East Coast as well as Florida. Um, there's a lot of um, Trump um, presence and rallies within Florida. I and mean, it's quite key when you kind of think back to the 2000 election and just how key Florida was in terms of the quantity of electoral votes that actually won the election for um, President Bush. Um in comparison, Vice President Pence is actually taking up the Rust Belt states, and he's actually been seen with Ivanka Trump on um, on his visits there. Um, now, one key location, which I just want to men- mention, is Minnesota, because it's quite interesting as to how this might actually um, play out. So Trump actually lost Minnesota by 45,000 votes to um, Clinton back in 2016, and he lost nine counties. Five of them were near the urban Twin Cities, and four were actually in the northeastern Iron Range. Now, in 2020, we've actually seen nine mayors who've actually signed an endorsement letter for Trump, meaning that um, the state has a chance to actually swing for Trump. And an interesting part of that. The reason why they're actually supporting Trump this time is by the actions that he's taken in order to actually support the mining industry there. Um, So it's interesting from an economic perspective that a state like Minnesota, which has been traditionally Democrat, has the chance to swing to um, the Republican side. So the West Coast, which has been a strong area of support for Clinton, is currently being ignored by the Trump campaign, which isn't of surprise. Um, so moving on from areas, let's look at structures. So Vincent, can you just walk us through the three branches of the U.S. government? Yeah, so the U.S. political structure has three separate branches, uh, each with their own uh, powers as well as the checks and balances. Uh, these branches work together to run the country. Uh, the first of these branches is the legislative branch, which is comprised of 100 senators, which are divided by two per state, uh, so equal representation, as well as 435 uh, members of the House of Representatives, uh, which is divided by uh, based on population size per state. Uh, so you mentioned Florida being key. Uh, states like Florida, like Texas, like California, uh, have the largest number of representatives because they have the largest share of the population in the U.S. Uh, together, they're called the U.S. Congress, and their primary function is to make laws. Uh, but also, they also have uh, approval uh, for federal judges, for justices, as well as passing the national budget and declaring war. The second of these branch is the executive branch, which at the moment is uh, comprised of President Donald Trump, uh, his vice president, uh, Pence, as well as uh, their cabinet. Um, the purpose of this branch is to execute the laws, uh, but also appoint government officials uh, and command the armed forces with President Trump being the commander in chief. And finally, the third branch is the judicial branch, uh, which compromise, comprises of all the courts with the Supreme Court uh, being the highest court in the United States. Uh, This court uh, settles disputes uh, between states, as well as uh, rules on whether uh, laws are constitutional or not. And we've also seen quite a lot of um, conversations and arguments about the um, appointment of Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of, with this election, it's important because uh, Democrats and Republicans see this election as uh, the soul of the nation, uh, and as fighting for control of its institutions, with the Supreme Court being such an important one, uh, because Democrats on one side are afraid that if uh, she is nominated and voted it through uh, by Congress to become a Supreme Court justice, the Republicans will have such a stronghold 
on the courts that laws like uh, or court cases like Roe versus Wade, uh, which was abortion, might get reversed. And so that's what worries them so much and why they're looking uh, at any means possible to stop her nomination before the election so that in the event that Biden um, gets elected, then he, he'll have the opportunity uh, to then nominate his own uh, candidate for for the Supreme Court. And it's just, it's one of those institutions that's been so important in the moment because in the last few decades, it's just been so politicized. Uh, whereas judges are meant to be impartial, uh, we now just look at the Supreme Court with Republicans and Democrats uh, and how they might uh, vote on certain issues, which is in a way they shouldn't because they should just be looking at whether it fits with the Constitution or not. Uh, so it's just one of those institutions that right now everyone is focused on. And this came from the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I think at the time, the Supreme Court of the United States was balanced um, five to four in mm-hmm. conservative favor. Whereas now with the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, this would sort of give it a super majority of six to three. Yeah. And it's led to questions as if, if by uh, if Biden were to win the election, but uh, the nomination for Amy Coney Barrett were to go through before the election, would he pack uh, the Supreme Court afterwards, uh, which would mean adding ad- additional justices to kind of level out the balance again, uh, which he's yet to uh, answer when uh, prompted by reporters uh, on that issue. And if the election is then decided by the Supreme Court, it just gives ammunition to laws on the left who feel as if the, the court has been packed by Trump in his favor. Yeah. What I did want to mention was, so you've obviously got the U.S. Congress, which is made up of the Senate as well as the House of Representatives. So um, a key personality as part of that is Nancy Pelosi. Um, and you know, she obviously attempted to impeach or led the impeachment or attempted impeachment against um, Donald Trump back in 2019. Again, can you just sort of walk us through what happened with that impeachment process and why that was why that was attempted? Yeah, so the impeachment of Donald Trump was initiated in December 2019, and it was when the House of Representatives uh, approved articles of impeachment um, and on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, and it basically revolved around the Trump um, Ukraine scandal, where Trump uh, is accused of having. Uh, attempted to coerce Ukraine and other foreign uh, actors into uh, providing damaging material on then-primary candidate for the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, um, as well as information relating to uh, Russian interference in, 2000, in the 2016 uh, U.S. elections, um, which, after uh, the articles were brought, voted on by the House of Representatives, the Senate, which is uh, controlled by the Republicans and led by Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, acquitted Trump on on all these charges in February 2020, and there seems to be um, very obvious animosity between Speaker Pelosi and President Trump. Um, and I think you know, once we kind of start to go through the whole processes as to how the election may play out, it's it's interesting just to note what role she potentially could play going forward. So we've spoken there about the structures. So the next part of the year scope is the capabilities. Um, So COVID is clearly having an impact on the US's ability to actually conduct the election efficiently. There's reportedly a severe shortage of polling um, polling workers and mailing voting is um, being conducted on an unprecedented scale for the US. Now, the US Postal Service has warned that almost all 50 states that they may not be able to deliver the ballots on time. 
and some of the controversy surrounding this. So in June, President Trump nominated a Republican donor and tasked him with actually making uh, the government agency profitable. And the Trump appointee cut overtime for postal workers, late delivery trips and other expenses that ensure that the mail arrives on time, which has resulted in a national slowdown in mail. Now, the US Postal Service is um, reportedly starved for funds and President Trump has been accused of denying the organisation financial aid in order to prevent people from voting and i think um, another thing uh, on that is has been the uh, the removal of 711 uh, mail sorting machines from various postal facilities right. uh, across the u.s uh, which in a written testimony by uh, the postal services director of processing operations uh, is the highest uh, level uh, of removal of machines in the last four years in at least four years um, so it's that's quite significant and leads to kind of that rhetoric from the Democrats that Trump might be trying to steal uh, the election, particularly as mail-in voting uh, is so high this year due to COVID-19. Yeah, so we're already starting to kind of sketch out numerous instances where either side can look at the election and claim that was that's false, that's a false election, and um, and are likely going to be. Um, flashpoints and issues around which extreme groups are actually going to gather. Another aspect of the capability side is the dispute resolution. Now, what we've done is we've actually produced a, a scenario chart, um, a, a diagram, which actually shows um, not every scenario, but the key ones that we think are actually going to be appropriate to the election. So if I just kind of walk us through that. So you have the presidential election result, and then there's the two more straightforward options is that either Trump or Biden both have the mandate to govern. So they win enough of the vote that it is unquestionable that they actually have a mandate. Um, the sort of impact from that in terms of the security situation. So I think from a left-wing perspective, if we have another Trump win, um, the narrative is going to be amongst the extremes of the left that there's another fascist in the fascist, there's still a fascist in the White House and um, possibly claiming that he stole the election, as well as for the more extremes, fermenting dissent as well as potentially revolution, because a lot of people are looking at the US at the moment and trying to kind of um, stoke some sort of revolution. I think in comparison to a Biden win, yes, you would see an increase in right-wing action, but this is going to be very much issue-based. Um, so it could be things like um, you know any attempts that he, he, he makes to actually water down the Second Amendment, or it could be around, again, the election was stolen, um, and you'd probably see some sort of support from former President Trump from the sidelines um, actually pushing that narrative. And I think, um, I think COVID-19 could also be one of those issues because we've seen uh, with certain restrictions in the last few months taken place by state governors, a number of uh, armed actors from militias um, to the Boogaloo Boys to uh, just run-in-the-mill people who are tired of these lockdown measures uh, going to state, ho- state houses, state capitals, uh, and protesting there, uh, as well as going into their armed and, and sh- shouting at security guards uh, there. So I think that, that could also be a point of contention if Biden gets elected and he decides that more restrictions or measures need to be taken put in place in order to stem the the spread of COVID. There's yeah. definitely a perception that COVID nineteen has been politicized in 2020, and it's not just the USA; it's in a lot of other countries as well. Um, but yeah, I think definitely the the economic impact of, of COVID nineteen over the year would definitely affect the way also that workers may vote um, within these bases and within these um, states as well, and influence candidate choice. Just going back to a, an outright Trump mandate win and the reaction by the left as well. I think it's important to add that Trump's rhetoric uh, on the campaign trail about 
even though if it's joking of, of, of having multiple um, Kenyas in office um, going forward, that will only uh, incite and incentivize the, the far left to, to react. So moving on, the, the, the next two options that I just want to walk us through is a loss by both sides. So if Biden loses or if Trump loses, I think a key aspect is going to be um, if either side claims that the election was rigged. Um, and then we're going to see a process of legal action. And that's going to be similar for if there's no authoritative result, we're going to be see a constitutional crisis in the US um, and probably significant litigation from either side, depending on um, who's actually questioning the, the vote count. Um, as we kind of move through that process, so with the 2000 elections, um, you had Florida, which was the key state in regard to the Bush versus Gore. Now, that was actually um, could have been decided on a state um, Supreme Court level. It actually ended up being elevated to the federal Supreme Court. But the actual um, state issues, they can be resolved at a state Supreme Court level. Um, it's in only certain circumstances where that then gets elevated to the federal Supreme Court. Um, there's a co- couple of other amendments which I just want to kind of mention. So one is the 12th Amendment, where the president and the vice president would actually be elected by the House and each state would actually get one vote, although that seems unlikely. There's also the 20th Amendment, which kind of comes back to um, Speaker Pelosi. So with the 20th Amendment, the Speaker of the House becomes the acting president until the election is actually resolved and then we can move towards Inauguration Day. So there is the potential that Speaker Pelosi could actually become the um, the acting president for a period. Um, so once we've actually gone through that whole process and we actually do get to Inauguration Day, I think if it's a Trump win, what we're going to see is an increase in action and violence up to the Inauguration Day, seeing potentially rioting and looting, um, probably significant attempts to actually disrupt the Inauguration itself. And we can't rule out a high-profile terrorist attack, some sort of um, person on the lunatic fringe of the left actually going out and trying to actually conduct some sort of terrorism incident. Similarly, on the right, if we see a Joe Biden presidency, I think we're going to see protest, protest action, which will be based on um, uh, narratives. Um, so sur- regarding certain themes, for example, that the election was stolen, we could see demonstrations, although it's unlikely that we're going to see rioting or looting. But again, we can't rule out the threat of a lone wolf terrorist attack um, during this period. So it's worth us talking about what happened in the 2000 election because that could actually be a factor in terms of this election. So in 2000 presidential election, you had Al Gore versus George W. Bush. Um, And it's worth noting that in the US, you don't actually win the presidency by the popular vote. It's based on the actual votes um, of the Electoral College. Now, each state is assigned electoral votes based on their population size. And the candidate who gets the most votes in each state then automatically gets all of the electoral votes for that state. Now, there's 538 electoral votes votes in total and the candidate has to get past the 270 mark to actually win the presidency. So in 2000 Al Gore had 255 electoral votes whereas George Bush had 246. Now on the 7th of November on election day the election came down to who actually would win the most votes in the state of Florida and therefore got its 25 electoral votes. Now when the polls closed the result was so close um, that there actually um, had to be a recount. Um, now, Bush actually had 900-vote lead out of 6 million votes that were cast within Florida. So this led to Al Gore demanding a recount by hand in four crucial counties, and the Florida Secretary of State demanded that the recount be completed by the 14th of November, so seven days after the election day. The Gore campaign actually petitioned 
petitioned the Florida Supreme Court, who then gave them until the 26th of November. So only two of the counties who were actually conducting the recount managed to do the recount. One of the counties just gave up trying, and the other county were two hours late to the deadline. So even with the two counties who actually produced their recounts, that actually then reduced um, Bush's vote tally from 900 down to 500. Now, the um, Florida Supreme Court then granted the Gore campaign a request for a larger recount of 70,000 questionable ballots. And these included ballots that were spoiled or discarded because of hole-punching issues or because somebody had actually voted for more than one candidate. Now, 19 days after the election, um, the U.S. Supreme Court actually intervened and halted the the recount. The Supreme Court, um, who voted five to four, um, conservative to liberal, um, to stop the count, arguing that a recount of only some ballots violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment in the Constitution. And the U.S. Supreme Court then left the fi- then had the final left the final say, sorry, to the Florida Supreme Court. But all that they could do at that time was actually dismiss the case. So Gore then conceded and Bush was declared president and Gore supporters were enraged, arguing that the Supreme Court was split along partisan lines with five justices favoring Republicans and four Democrats. Democrats and therefore unfair. And this was the first time since 1888 where the popular vote was won, but the Electoral College vote was lost. I think that's a key issue regarding this election. And I think certainly from a security perspective, once the um, we see legal cases going to state Supreme Courts, I think these are going to be locations for um, demonstrations and protests and potentially violence as part of that. I think even you know, just looking at polling stations as well, there could be specific areas or concentrations of um of issues. So an example would be that um, President Trump uh, has urged his supporters to go into the polls. So I think one of his tweets was, I am urging my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because this is what is about to happen. I am urging them to do it. I hope this is going to be a fair election. And if it's a fair election, I'm 100% on board. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. Now, a statement like that is quite provocative. And you can visualize the more fringe members or um, hardcore Trump supporters being inspired to go to polling stations and potentially get into conflict or um, have issues there where, where, where violence may escalate with, 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 with Democrats or, or Democratic voters. And it's not just um, sort of the right who actually go to these protests around. You know, you do actually see left-wing groups also who go armed. You know, there are certain groups who are linked to Antifa, the, um, what's the one called up in... Washington State, the what the Puget Sound. Oh yeah, the Puget Sound Gun Club. Yeah, yeah, they were actually linked to when the uh, uh, I suppose you know uh, the Chaz Chop scenario happened in Seattle. They were they were there uh, among among the groups that were armed, sort of providing sort of uh, I suppose these sort of anarchist security uh, that are there, and they've they've been very they've been very very vocal in terms of well in terms of what they stand for. They're very vocal that they you know they're they actually despise the actual very concept of government. Uh, what, you, what you find as well from these organisations, organizations, both left and right, you know, they are allegedly there to monitor the electoral process. You know, in many ways, they're actually intimidating voters who want to physically attend those locations as well. And that could be an issue which may affect attendance on the day. Uh, 
Yeah, a key difference as well from the 2016 to the 2020 election is this is going to be the first time in nearly 40 years when it's conducted without the protections afforded by a decree that was agreed by Republican committees applicable to activities anywhere in the US agreeing not to use race in selecting targets for ballot security activities. Um, So that order actually expired in 2018 after Democrats failed to convince a judge to renew it. And at a time of worrying political polarisation and tensions around race, as well as a growing um, activist and militia movements, um, you know, an example being um, you know, the NFAC, the Not Fucking Around Coalition. So this is a, you know, a black nationalist group who've come in significant numbers to rallies and armed. So the worry for me is looking at the actual polling locations. Do you then see separate armed groups going there and facing off with each other and the potential for an escalation at those polling stations? So it's worth pointing out that there are actually three personalities, two who are actually already on the Supreme Court and one who could be on the Supreme Court by the time the election comes around, who are actually um, linked to the Bush versus Gore case. So you had John Roberts, who helped prepare the lawyer who presented Bush's case to the Florida Supreme Court. You had Brett Kavanaugh, who was in private practice at the time, and his work related to the recounts in Volusia County. And if Amy Coney Barrett actually gets onto the Supreme Court, um, she provided research and briefing assistance for Bush in Bush versus Gore which I think is an interesting aspect to the Supreme Court. Absolutely. And there's a chance that she will be on the Supreme Court by the time uh, the election rolls around uh, with the Judiciary Committee uh, meeting on October 22nd uh, to, uh, to have a vote to see if it goes on the, on the floor uh, for a whole Senate vote. And then at which point it could uh, speed up the process. And by October 25th, there could be uh, a nomination for her uh, and the full vote. So, uh, yeah, the, there's a possibility that three, uh, like the three that you've just mentioned, uh, could be on the Supreme Court and have an impact for if it goes to legal to a legal case uh, based on the results. And just highlighting the importance of the Supreme Court. So, um, I think we can play a clip now of what President Trump said on the 22nd of September, where he talked about we need nine justices, talking about how he feels that it's going to be a hoax with the ballots and that it's probably going to come down to the Supreme Court to actually um, you know, make a decision. He also said at a campaign rally in Fayetteville, North Carolina, that we're going to have a victory on the November the 3rd, the likes of which you've never seen. Now we're counting on the federal court system to make it so that we can actually have an evening where we know who wins, not where the votes are going to be counted or one or two weeks later. Um, so the Supreme Court of the states, as we mentioned previously, um, can actually resolve their own um, issues or anything that's linked to the result. It would be probably another 2000 level scenario where it would actually see it escalating to the federal Supreme Court. Now, just kind of looking at the eight key states that we've highlighted, um, we've also mentioned, we've also looked at them in kind of research just to see which party dominates those state Supreme Courts. So Minnesota is, is Democrat dominated by five to two. Wisconsin is Republican nominated by four to three. Michigan is Republican nominated by four to three. Pennsylvania is Democrat nominated by five to two. North Carolina is Democrat nominated by six to one. And you've got Georgia, Florida and Arizona are all Republican nominated by eight, seven and seven to none. So out of the um, eight different states, five of them are actually dominated by the Republican Party. So moving on from people, we're now going to actually look at events. 
So we've created a calendar of key events associated with the election. So you have November 3rd is the election day. And what we've also highlighted on there, kind of linking it to 2000, is just what the dates would be if there was one week given to them to actually do a recount or perhaps two and a half weeks um, like the State Supreme Court of Florida actually provided. Um, so you're looking at 10th of November and 22nd of November. Um, you've also got other dates, like on the 8th of December is the deadline for resolving any election disputes. On the 14th of December, you've got the electors who have to meet in all 50 states and the District of Columbia as per the 1887 Electoral Count Act to cast their ballot for the president, which is a, a mainly symbolic um, act as part of the um, process. On the 23rd of December is the deadline for the receipt of the elector's ballots to, re- to be received by the Senate. And on the 3rd of January, the newly elected Congress is seated for the first time. And on the 6th of January, the House and the Senate meet jointly for a formal count of the electoral vote. And then finally, on the 20th of January is the inauguration. 1200 hours is when President Trump's term actually ends. So I think in terms of security instances, I think any of those locations that we've mentioned there could see symbolic um, demonstrations and protests by people who are actually um, you know, unhappy with how the, the political process is going. I think unhappy or untrustworthy of it, because mm-hmm. uh, I think we, we talked about militias, we talked about poll washing, and I think the anti-government sentiment that has come out in recent months with the protests and things like that could play a major factor. Uh, in aligning some groups that might seem ideologic, ideologically opposite, at least on the political spectrum. But if it becomes these groups versus the government, which they don't trust, then that's a situation that might be very tense. Mm-hmm. And businesses located in, in those areas which may be affected, like in Washington, D.C., during Inauguration Day or in the vicinity of polling stations, will need to increase their vigilance around these key dates, I think, as well, from a, from a security perspective. Absolutely. So that's the political um, aspect of the PMESI. Um We've probably gone into that in the most detail out of all the aspects for clear um, and understandable reasons. So, Vincent, do you want to take us through the military aspect? Yeah, absolutely. So for the military aspect of the ASCOP PMESI, we looked at, at it more from a law enforcement perspective and then kind of a secondary look, uh, military and National Guard, just because uh, in the event, that there's a continuation of protest or more protest pre or post election, uh, law enforcement agencies are going to be the front line uh, in this in, in these instances. Uh, so we looked at several aspects uh, that we talked about in the political, such as areas uh, in regards to police stations, police associations, detention centers, and courthouses, which might be areas where uh, there's confrontation and where police activity will be high. Uh, and we've seen it in with past examples, uh, like in currently the violence in Portland or Seattle, where federal courthouses get targeted with incendiary devices, with uh, rocks, with any type of blunt objects, uh, where there's clashes between uh, police um, and protesters. And that's both uh, law, local law enforcement and federal law enforcement. Uh, so we also looked at the structures uh, from specific organizations, so your local police departments to then federal uh, police um, uh, federal agencies like the FBI or the ATF. Um, however, what I want to concentrate on today is kind of the capabilities. Um, so with the election being the most significant and heated um, in decades, it will likely lead to more protests. Uh, so several departments have already told officers uh, to be prepared to be deployed in the event of uh, electoral viol- violence. Uh, so we've had the NYPD uh, prepare officers uh, to be deployed as early as October 25th. Um, and with detectives and captains and kind of high-level 
members being deployed to the field to command these forces. We've also had kind of similar um, warnings from the police departments in Texas, like Austin, San Antonio, and Fort Worth, uh, also telling their officers to be prepared to be deployed uh, in the event of um, unrest. So just kind of talking about the capabilities of the police, there have been some police forces who have been degraded through this process through the past six to 12 months, kind of linked to the George Floyd protest. You know, I take example of what's happened in Seattle, where I think 110 police officers have resigned. You even had the chief of police, I believe it was, who also resigned from her position. Also in um, Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed, there's been a, a degrading of the police there with, um, I mean, certainly from a morale perspective, where you've got the local um, council who are actually trying to go through a process of, of completely removing the police. So I think we can say that there are certain parts of the US where the police have been degraded, and that's going to have an impact on their ability to actually police any protest or any action that is associated with the election. And it's also undermined um, the relationship between the police and local government as well. So... Uh, as Michael said there, it's, it will have an effect on, on the actual effectiveness of policing in those areas. When well, local yeah. police officers, they make arrests and then they see um, local um, judge advocates maybe releasing um, certain uh, protesters quickly. Yeah. And that's what we've seen with Portland with the district attorney uh, not pushing cases uh, for misdemeanor crimes and releasing hundreds of, of protesters uh, within hours and then the next night, the same the same people that just got released are then back on the street, and that's led to uh, certain uh, sheriff departments uh, surrounding Portland uh, refusing to send their own officers uh, to these to these protests to help uh, local law enforcement uh, increase their capabilities. So definitely uh, an impact uh, on that scale. Uh, but then you have other states like Florida, where the governor and, and local law enforcement say uh, are threatened to take more severe actions uh, and not allowing any unrest to take place. Uh, so it's kind of looking at, and, and you can kind of see from democratic perspective of where these areas are controlled, then Republican states taking a more harsher uh, step towards towards any type of unrest. Um, so yeah, the capabilities are definitely thwarted. Um, by the narrative that we've seen over the last few months in terms of defunding the police. And you mentioned uh, the Seattle police chief um, resigning, and that, that happened uh, shortly after the city council voted to defund uh, the budget of uh, that department. Um, and then once you lose that type of leadership based on those decisions, that impacts the officers who are on the ground or on the front line. So definitely significant impacts on that perspective. And if you're a local business operating in those areas which have been impacted and affected by police budget cuts, um, it's, it's, it's definitely going to undermine your, your confidence in getting a speedy response to any, just a routine criminal, criminal call out, let alone social unrest or, 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 or political violence in the area which may affect your location. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we see that. Uh, one example of that would be kind of in Atlanta uh, after the shooting of Richard Brooks uh, when the officer was actually charged for murder for, for that shooting. Uh, a number of officers on the late shift uh, called, it, called out sick or refused, kind of stayed mm-hmm. silent and refused any call outs. Yeah. Uh, so that while the Atlanta uh, police department said that didn't have a particular effect on response time, if that does happen in, in uh, during unrest, uh, significant periods of unrest during this this election, um, that would be significant, to say the least. So like, we we saw in Portland where you had um, federal officers who were brought in to protect federal buildings, and what you saw was a switch from groups like Antifa, who went from targeting the police to then targeting federal agencies as being the number one target. Once they were withdrawn, they then went back to targeting the local police again. Um, I mean, what do we think will happen, actually, if police forces are overwhelmed in, in cities in the U.S.? 
Well, I think one the one thing that can happen would be the deployment of uh, the National Guard um, or uh, armed forces, uh, and that's basically possible through the Insurrection Act, uh, which is put if that it's put into play, which would uh, override the Posse Comitatus Act, uh, which bans using active uh, duty military to execute the law, uh, un- except under circumstances authorized uh, by the Constitution. Um, so this act, Insurrection Act of 1807, empowers the President of the United States. Uh, to deploy the U.S. military and federalize the uh, National Guard troops within the United States, uh, in particular cir- circumstances, uh, including to suppress civil disorder, insurrection, and rebellion. Um, so I think that the application of this act and then the activation, the federalization of the National Guard deployed in these cities, I think we've seen it a, a couple times um, during the last few months uh, when it did get uh, bad, uh, would allow uh, and increased uh, capabilities and capacity um, in the field. Yeah, we saw it in um, Minneapolis, certainly where the National Guard was deployed. Um, and, you know, Minneapolis was a, an interesting example of just how demonstrators, protesters, activists and riots can just dominate the space. You know, they initially targeted the Target store. And then following that, the protests in St. Paul that occurred, you then had the police who were um, protecting that Target store. You then had activists who were just moving around the perimeter. They were targeting stores, looting them, setting them on fire, and then moving to another location. They were conducting counterintelligence through Telegram, actually reporting on police um, locations. So they were really efficient in how they operated. There's, uh, my point here is that the protesters and activists we're currently seeing are very adept at actually um, dealing and responding to the police's actions. And in response, I think we'll see more and more concerned businesses in those vulnerable locations and resorting to hiring private security, static guards, or or even just concerned local citizens guarding their own business premises uh, armed, as we have witnessed before in, in, in areas of unrest. We saw that in Minneapolis. We saw people sort of dressed in Hawaiian shirts, yeah. you know, or potentially Boogaloo boys who were saying, you know, we're here to actually protect property and businesses, and we're also here to actually monitor the police and their actions. Well, it was the same thing in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed uh, two protesters and wounded another one. Initially, he he went there, part of this group, to protect businesses. So ultimately, you can have these situations where people take on, uh, decide to take on a role of law enforcement to protect their own businesses or other people's businesses, and that creates uh, a situation that mm-hmm. can become very violent very quickly because these people come to these businesses and protect them with firearms, uh, and so yeah, it's a it's a situation that can turn very violent very quickly. So we've covered politics and we've covered the military. Now let's look at the economic aspect of this. So clearly there's significant issues already from an economic perspective for the US linked to COVID-19 and the bankruptcies. If we just look at through some of the um, sort of brands that have gone out of business through this process, it's things like retailers, gyms, um, anything from the entertainment industry. But in relation to the election, you know, one of the key issues is going to be uh, for business, what they want to see is a, a clear result straight away. They don't want to see any confusion at all, so they want to either see a Trump presidency or a Biden presidency. Because if there is no authoritative result, what you're going to see is just the capital just slow down and not be pumped into the economy because people want certainty before they start putting capital into businesses. Um, I think more broadly, some of the key issues that we've seen is the 
um, sort of protesters and activists and their response to businesses. So as an example, in Portland, you had um, lists of businesses who were supporting Blue Lives Matter. So there was a tweet that went out saying, um, we're trying to compile a list of all non-friendly businesses in Portland, also known as any companies that's hanging Blue Lives uh, garbage in their store or anything that's anti-BLM movement. Drop them below. And then there's people actually responding below, actually giving names of businesses. So I think... Businesses that actually show their affiliation could then become a target as part of this election um, process. Is there any other thoughts from an economic perspective as to how um, the election is going to actually impact the economy? I think as I was just going back to how um, businesses are targeted um, by by individuals or groups, being targeted for an ideology um, is quite unique, I think. Previously, businesses, as we've seen in, in, in Europe, such as in Sweden or in Holland, they're targeted by um, organised crime groups uh, for financial reasons. And what we're seeing in the US environment during the election period is corporations or businesses being targeted for ideological reasons. And even if many of those businesses don't want to get involved, if they're in the prominent areas which are affected, they're still getting pressurised or intimidated by activists from, from, say, the BLM or from the far left. But I think one also one important aspect is not just looking at the business infrastructure or organisation itself, but the effect that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on the actual economy itself and the way that people are thinking about voting. So with mass layoffs, we're seeing that job security is now a priority. And, you know, for example, if we look at Maslow's pyramid, um, you know, people's needs come first over people's desires or, you know, um, looking at party policy or environmental renewable energy policy. So people in many of the states which are affected um, by unrest or protest are really going to be looking at job security and and their own business security over potentially left or right ideology. So in that environment, Trump is seen as pro-business and less willing to implement regulation and red tape, which may affect certain industries such as mining and as we mentioned before in in, um, Minnesota. And, and swing the vote in, in, in favour in his states. Um, I think as well many many business owners will be looking at security and the ease of operations, especially going into a recession as this is created, and this may swing um, sympathies or, or votes in, in favour of, of, of a Republican administration. I think either way, either, either candidate who actually wins the presidency, we're still going to see an impact on business going forward. So if it's another term of President Trump, we're going to see a continuation of Antifa and BLM protests. And even though you've had large multinational organisations who've actually given money to um, you know social justice causes, they have st- still then actually came in for um, attack yeah. um, and protests. And you know there was a recent video that was released by um, Project Veritas where the, um, the person who they were doing the undercover the footage of was saying that Jeff Bezos is at the top of the list for us, you know, and he's seen um, protests outside his house. He's seen people bringing guillotines to um, outside his house. So I think even if President Trump does get in for another four years, we're still going to see a continuation. But likewise with President Biden, I think, you know, you're still going to see a continuation of um, the um, social justice movements and progressives and groups like Antifa who are going to continue to actually push their agenda. And I think I said this in the last podcast, you know, once they're actually finished with the police, then after that, they'll go after the businesses and probably use similar um, tactics that they've they've seen to be successful of, you know, doxing key personnel, of actually doing protests at locations. So I think we can see a continuation of the targeting of large multinational businesses, whether or not they give money to these causes or not. And similarly, we may see... um 
businesses targeted by far right lone wolf um, perpetrators who are maybe if it's, if it's a Biden vic- victory, they're unhappy with with, with how um, a certain businesses uh, stated their support for, uh, for the Democrats, and they could be targeted again with through an individual high-profile incident or or an explosive device or something similar. I think we also have to remember that right now we've discussed businesses kind of as this entity, but these businesses are made up of individuals as well. And the what the unrest that's happening, the ideology, uh, the identity politics, all play a factor on these individuals. And so it's what impact does a split office between individuals who support BLM, individuals who can't be bothered uh, because they like the status quo, and individuals who are against what the movement's done or what Antifa is doing? What impact can that have within a business? And so I think that's Absolutely, yeah. the, that's something that businesses need to be aware of is kind of internal uh, threats and politics uh, involved in their businesses, particularly yeah. large companies and the uh, that incorporate threat, hundred, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, we saw an example in the UK at um, Billingsgate Fish Market recently where you had Extinction Rebellion protesters arrive and try to protest um, you know, what was happening at the, the fish market in relation to the environment. And they were then assaulted by the workers. And I think at a time when you're seeing lots of businesses go out of business, if you then see activists who are actually protesting businesses that actually have an impact on their, um, their livelihoods... I think you're then going to see the working classes actually start to react to these movements um, using violence against them. I think there's there's already indications of that happening. I think the uh, I mean, although a, a bit more indirect, where it was uh, the uh, incident with Carl with Carl Rittenhouse. In that case, it was you know sort of people going to protect a business, but I suppose in in sort of that that sort of scenario you've put out is uh, would the the business owners actually. Joining, uh, joining, uh, I suppose, you know, f- for lack of a better term, joining in the fight. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, in Washington, we saw um, over the past few months sort of BLM protests in the northern parts of Washington actually going to restaurants and demanding that people sort of put their hands up and, and show solidarity. And those that didn't end up getting shouted abuse at them. And they've even walked into restaurants and just cleared the restaurant out of people. Yeah. Um, you know, at a time when the retail sector is and, and the leisure industry is significantly being impacted by, in the U.S., um, you know, this just won't fly for a long period of time. You know, there's going to be reactions to these protest movements and what they're what they're trying to do. So we've covered political, military, economic. Now, social and information. There's a lot of crossover here, um, both in terms of the newspapers, the mainstream media, as well as social media as well. So, um, you know, uh, Daniel, just want to kind of take us some, through some of these points. Sure. I think um, the media in the US reflects the the tapestry of political diversity and thought within the country. Um, The US is one of the most established and sophisticated information structures in the world. Um, You have a multitude of media outlets um, and you have a literate population of of 99% at least with access to the internet and online media. It's very clear watching U.S. media that they they back a certain candidate. You know, you can't just watch CNN and think that they are pro-Trump because you know it's there seems to be a lack of uh, unbiased media within the U.S. It's very much along sort of party lines, which is very very obvious. Exactly, and I think that that partisanness has got worse. It's, it's increased over the over the last decade or two as well. And why do you think that is? Um, there's a multitude of reasons. I think um, one of the one of the primary um, reasons for that really is is the the advent of social media so although you have social media where you can get instant access to information which is great in one sense it's also a weakness because 
with 24-7 and reporting and social media, you've got to focus on speed rather than accuracy. So many journalists want to get the information out there from an incident to be able to get um, increased attention, to get increased likes, to get retweets, for example, on social media. And also um, the national news is focusing on the 24-7 to try and break that incident before other organisations. So there's a commercial competitiveness there to get the information out. And a lot of times rather than, say, 30 or 40 years ago where the information on an event was was verified or checked, this information is, is just pushed out to, to be able to get the, the, the effect of increased attention on, on, on the, the TV channel or the journalist who's online. Yeah, and I think the rise of a 24-hour news cycle where news channels are just on all the time, whether there's important news or not, they have a duty to report something because a lot of these news channels are owned by a corporation who has other products that they want to sell. So I think they look at who they want their target audience to be uh, in terms of selling these products, and then they kind of adapt the news or their viewpoints based on that uh, in order to kind of uh, hit the right markets uh, for for their views. And there's self-reinforcing echo chambers as well, where you follow people who support your idea, so you kind of put yourself in your own echo chamber within a social media platform. But then it's also driven by algorithms as well, because you watch a certain video, then they're going to keep plugging the other videos that are like that just to keep your attention, actually keep you on their platform. I think the other aspect as well is from a media perspective is that the readership is going down significantly. So you now have um, certain publications that are behind paywalls. So you can't read, um, you know, potentially opposing opinions because you then have to actually pay to access that um, that opinion. So I think, again, that kind of feeds into this as well. And with social media, <clears throat> anyone could be a journalist now. So what you're finding is before, you know, um, going back two or three decades, journalists would go to journalism school. There'd be uh, checks and balances. When they're in an organisation, there'd be editorial ship as well. What you're finding now is anyone can set up a Twitter handle, become a, a journalist slash activist, and then push out your own um version of events or your own news feed and events can be twisted to follow agendas or incite and inflame opinion and you know that just serves to increase polarization throughout the whole target audience of the united states yeah i mean you look at certain twitter handles and it's like um journalist stroke activist and for me i don't think that they should be um um, activities that should be conducted together i think journalism has a specific place which is kind of holding um you know power to account it shouldn't be with a political bias which kind of just it serves to kind of feed towards this sort of polarized um, atmosphere um, i think the other aspect of it as well is people are self-educated so you know 40 years ago or 30 years ago you had to go to the library to take out a book to actually learn about something new people can now can sit on social media they can sit on youtube and these sorts of channels and teach themselves their own versions of history, their own conspiracy theories as to why the world is is operating and how it works. And that just is, is, is radicalizing people on a, a massive scale, which is really frightening. And yes, you know, social media companies have had to react to that and try to put in place... Um, checks and and uh, against what people are actually researching because it is radicalizing them but then they get accused of being um censors and censorship but there are examples where um you know people can claim well certain things are being censored if you take recently the hunter biden scandal and the release that was occurring there you know twitter and facebook came into um issues because they were actually blocking that from being shared now the right look at that and say you're um 
impacting the election. You're actually, you know, you are becoming a publisher. You are deciding what editorial um, uh, content actually goes out from your your channel. Um, so I think that that for me is is certainly a key issue. And and you are getting social media companies who are being seen as being political entities, and I think are, are kind of putting themselves in the crosshairs for extremists. No, absolutely. And you talk about kind of these people self educating based on social media, YouTube, thing, the, things the like. So they're building their own truth, and if it, that doesn't fit the truth of the company or anything like that then like you said there's censorship and that's led a number of people particularly on the right to other social media platforms so away from the likes of twitter and facebook where they consider them left and then onto uh, social media platforms that uh, advocate free speech like parlay where we see a number of uh, right wing um, far right as well as just conservative uh, talking heads and, and, and pundits be moving to these platforms where they're quite populated with people with that same ideology. So again, talking about echo chambers, uh, new platforms are just rising to fit the needs of people who feel disenfranchised by uh, other social media platforms that have been more well-established in the last decade. Yeah, and it's not just the online media that has been accused of bias. You've also got the, the, the traditional media outlets such as Fox run by you know, Rupert Murdoch or um, Ted Turner from Time Warner, CNN. They've also been accused of you know, pushing their own agendas and their own ideological slant. So it's, it's not just confined to the, the online community on, on social media. But one of the chasms you also have is the, the, the younger generation are increasingly reliant on social media, whereas the boomer generation, the older people, they still rely on the traditional outlets um, for their own information, which, again, as you look at the, the ideological viewpoint of a lot of younger people, um, it is more polarised than, say, people in their 50s or 60s who've, who've maybe they had access to, to the television and, and they may have in the past looked at CNN one day or Fox the other day, whereas... Now we have just more and more reinforcing of echo chambers and really you know, people going to sources that reflect their view and not allowing for any balanced analysis or counter-opinion. And if you look at polling regarding institutions that are trusted, politics and journalism are always at the bottom, yeah. which is not a good sign for a, a democracy. Um, you know, kind of bringing it back to the election itself, I think with a, a Biden presidency, I think social media companies will be allowed to continue as they are. I wonder if President Trump gets another election term, will he try and put checks and balances in place to social media companies um, or even um, just, you know, um, companies like Google, as an example, that to ensure that there isn't that sort of partisanship and that they are um, perceived to be um, balanced and actually serving both sides of the political spectrum. It's one that I'm interested in watching if Trump does win another election. I think it's important as well to, to acknowledge that f- from 2016 and, and Trump, President Trump's weaponizing of the fake news term, that's really undermined faith in media outlets and institutions in the Western world, really, with both sides using that terminology now to, to counter people with a conflicting opinion and just denying it outright and, and, and stating it's fake news. I think as well, you know, <clears throat> not only are there challenges in the domestic media from from different pers- persuasions or angles, but also there are influences from the outside. So as we saw in 2016 with, with allegations of Russiagate and collusion, there's also the susceptibility of this election to, to fall under the influence of foreign inf- information operations, influence campaigns. So um, we've seen bot farms being uh, uncovered in Ukraine or in, or in other, other locations around the globe. 
um, attempting to uh, foment or to incite um, social media to, to influence um, electoral opinion and also even dissemination or misinformation as well. I believe you uncovered a couple of uh, bot farms in Ukraine, was that Matt? Yes, that's right. Uh, there's been at least two uh, two incidents I've come across in the last couple of weeks where uh, Ukraine's uh, security service, the SBU, uncovered two bot farms in Kiev and these were these were organised by uh, they assessed them to uh, to come from uh, Russia's uh, Russia's intelligence service, and those and those particular bot farms weren't even uh, even looking at the U.S. election, or actually just they're actually focusing their efforts on the current Ukraine election. So, the bot farm threat when it comes to not just the U.S. but everywhere, it's it's a it's a very very real concern, and the the impact that they can have is can be quite devastating in terms of. Uh, what you can what you can push out in the information sphere, and it's not just confined to the, the social media as well. You've also got states having their own um, channels, um, pushing their own angle or agenda to try and exact some influence. So you've got, for example, RT International, um, or who will be attempting to um, push a certain narrative in the in the election in the USA, or or other national based. Um, uh, media outlets such as um, Chinese media networks, etc. And Russia was obviously a key aspect of the last election, and we mentioned on the last podcast where we talked about the Russia report, which was released by the Intelligence, Intelligence Committee. And in that, they were talking about how they felt that um, Russian channels were pushing um, narratives, particularly to the black community in the US, regarding topics of race relations in order to sort of incite um, unrest amongst them. And, you know, we have seen that. We have seen that, you know, from um, when President Trump took office. Um, and I mean, there are other aspects to this as well. Um, you know, you, you now have fact-checking groups. So, and, you know, you have fact-checking groups who um, appear to be um, um, unbiased, but then you also have fact-checking groups who are clearly from a certain political angle. So not only do you now have the media who is politicised, you then have the fact-checking groups who are supposed to fact-check what is going out who are also politicised as well. So there's just this massive mistrust amongst either side regarding this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just real quick on the point of kind of fomenting uh, opinions or kind of inciting uh, things like such as race, I think the, the factor on social media of being able to be anonymous not having your picture, not not having your real name, I think allows this freedom for people to put out information out there that if they were face-to-face with another person in real life, they probably wouldn't, uh, as well as responding to other people, I think. So I think it's the anonymity of of users on social media platforms has created this issue of of people being able to, and having freedom to just spread whatever they want. And we've seen certain threads um, on certain social media platforms, forcing uh, users, if they wanted to leave a comment, you'd have to have put your real information and, and have your picture and things like that just to kind of get rid of that uh, anonymous feeling where you'd be able to just spout anything from hatred to just lies. Uh, so I think that factor also plays a significant role uh, in terms of social media because when you look at accounts from whether it be gang members in Brazil or Antifa members, like it's rarely their real picture, it's rarely their real name. Uh, it's usually just some sort of username that fits in with their ideology. So I think that plays a significant role as well in kind of how social media platforms kind of lead to this polarization and, and kind of uh, inciting of, of unrest. And from a deception perspective, you do see um, people from different um, groups 
pretending to be part of a group and then saying stuff on social media in order to to, to attract negative attention. But in terms of that anonymity, <clears throat> you know, if you are a for, foreign intelligence service and you're looking at the US now and you can see the path that it's moving towards, if you want the US to be less focused on their foreign policy and kind of what's happening elsewhere around the globe and you want them to become more focused domestically, you are going to try to ferment dissent through this election process. So I think we are going to see, um, again, foreign intelligence services attempting to influence the election. I think the issue from the 2016 um, influence was that the reports that came out, it was saying, you know, it is our assessment that this has occurred because it's very difficult to actually attribute blame via social media. Um, But again, you know... uh, Trump was accused of colluding with Russia. The whole investigation was conducted and it was found that there was no smoking gun regarding regarding any collusion. Um, But for the right, they just looked at that and they said, you know, our guy won, he won the presidency and immediately he was was attacked um, for um, colluding with Russia when there was no evidence there at all. Um, You know, if we do get a president Biden, you know, will the right then look at that and go, well, right, it's our turn now from a political perspective. We're just going to hound Biden from the outset just as Trump was hounded when he kind of got into office. And I think that's very possible because just seeing from how congressmen behave in, in the House or the Senate, it's been very much like, well, you, you're talks of McConnell's blocked so many bills in the Senate, so if we get control, like it'll be our turn. Okay? It's becoming a tit-for-tat kind of situation that's just no good because, one, it doesn't lead to any actual governance, no bills being passed or being made. They're just focused on attacking each other based on their party, based on the ideology, rather than trying to find the common ground and, and lead the country towards a safer path. I think that's the same thing that you get with social media and, and it's just people opposite spectrum and just not trying to, no one's trying to find a common ground. And I think there's probably a large majority of people that are probably in the middle, but it's always the vocal extremes that that get most of the attention. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's possibly a silver line. There is a silver lining to it all, though. I mean, uh, even with all the the echo chambers, the disinformation, the dece- and deception that's uh, been that's become quite pervasive, and and even with the most recent example of the of the of social media companies uh, sort of blocking access to reports of um, the Joe uh, the Hunter Biden emails, uh, a major silver lining I've sort of come across with a lot of the incidents we've been logging is. Is uh, how is it's much easier to get access to reporting from investigative journalists now. There's amongst all the there's been quite a few examples of how uh, of, of how polarized all the mainstream media has become, especially journalists working for Fox, CNN. But you've got the uh, sort of the more I suppose the more old school uh, aspect of journalism, which is your, your likes of uh, Andy No, for ex- uh, for example. He a lot of his uh, a lot of his Twitter posts have featured uh, videos of what Antifa activists have been up to on the ground. In other aspects of social media, with the rise of uh, with the rise of podcasts, you get to ha- uh, listen to commentary from the likes of uh, Dan Crenshaw and, of course, uh, the most famous of all, Joe Rogan. And a lot of the people they sort of they sort of interview, you rarely come across those people in, in any of the other mainstream media. So, I suppose a silver lining is just the increased access to, I suppose, more uh, more on the ground uh, on the ground investigative journalism reporting and access to people who have, I suppose, more on, uh, on the ground or even or even wider experience. Yeah, it's got to the point now where people don't believe 
what they read. They want to see it. They want to see video. They want to see people seeing it out of their mouths. And I think that's why groups like Project Veritas, who clearly are right-leaning, are doing so well because they're managing to um, conduct these investigative journalism pieces by getting people in organizations to either one, come out and actually say, this is what I'm seeing as I'm working for this tech company or this news publication, um, or they're actually managing to get people in to record people um, saying things that are clearly inappropriate. You know, whether or not it's just hyperbole and they're just saying it um, in, t- in terms of sort of bragging or what, or they're actually telling the truth regarding what activities they're seeing within these organizations. I think you're going to see an increase in the sort of investigative type reporting units who are politically aligned um, you know we don't see so much of it from the left but I think you could see more of this from the left almost a uh, an opposite version of Project Veritas on the left coming out and trying to get similar scoops from uh, right-leaning organisations so that's kind of covering social and information so Matt do you just want to take us to the infrastructure finally so we can kind of finish the permessi Sure, now I suppose I'll, I'll keep this part uh, as, as brief as I can now when it comes to overall infrastructure it's important to remember the US is, uh, of course, a, a developed country. However, the uh, a sort of domestic, uh, I suppose, review organization uh, known as the American Society for Civil Engineers have provided an, an overall rating of infrastructure in the US as a, as a D. Uh, but that's mainly the actual, you're more old school aspect of infrastructure, so roads, uh, ports, uh, telephone lines, etc. But uh, missing from, um, I think, one fact that also needs to be mentioned to sort of, I suppose, back up just how, just how powerful the social media and media uh, sphere, information sphere is, is the capability, is the infrastructure capability of telecommunications, mainly mo- uh, mobile phones. I mean, several, uh, several sites I've been looking at with regards to mobile phone coverage, you've got a multitude of companies and at least four companies in the States, uh, I believe uh, the first two that come to mind are Verizon and AT&T Mobile. Yeah, and you've got Sprint as well. Sprint as well, yeah. And uh, essentially you look at their, their coverage maps and it's almost like looking at a uh, at uh, the highway maps of the, of the USA, the, the amount of towers and the kind of services you can uh, get access to. Uh, I mean, there's even cases where there's actually five, uh, I believe 5G available in a lot of major cities elsewhere it's all it's pretty much for uh, 4g everywhere else so the the physical infrastructure for uh for the especially information sphere really does is really uh well established highly capable and extreme uh, extremely resilient so mm-hmm. essentially one thing to keep in mind with infrastructure is the quality of it in the USA is what makes the information sphere so powerful yeah. uh, when it comes to everything Harry's mentioned would you see any activists targeting uh, infrastructure as a response to the elections? Would there be any threat, such as CNN media headquarters or the, the infrastructure that, uh, uh, from the telecommunications like masts or um, pipelines? There's uh, there's certainly the possibility of it, and it has, it has happened on, on odd occasion. Uh, surprisingly, there's I believe there's been at least one protest. There was a, uh, one protest a few months ago uh, at a CNN uh, at a at a CNN studio, I believe it was in it was in Atlanta. And as far as the, I suppose when it comes to mobile phone towers and around the world, we've had the anti five G conspiracy, and there's of course, uh, especially over here and and wider Europe, there's been a multitude of five G towers, uh, you know, subject to arson attacks. 
I haven't really come across many in the in the USA, but that's not to say that it doesn't happen. I mean, I you know, if there's one thing that the USA does uh, is quite famous for, unfortunately, is conspiracy theories, and something like the five G conspiracy would be something that would take hold. But uh, essentially, though, it's it's so well established over there already. Uh, all I can say is anyone who would want to try and actually target that kind of infrastructure i'd say essentially two words good luck it's just very well established mm-hmm. i think from from the infrastructure side of things i think telecoms one but i think we also kind of we should probably talk about kind of roads and highways and things like that just because i think from a business perspective in terms of logistics um we've seen with unrest uh precedents of protesters uh, attempting or succeeding in cutting off highways and protesting where we've seen multiple drivers hit protesters uh, because they felt threatened or because on purpose, uh, as well as uh, cargo truck drivers. I think there was a tanker truck that also drove through. So I think like the role of protesters in targeting that type of infrastructure is quite significant for businesses that have supply chain, which rely on roads and highways uh, in that matter. So I think, yeah, that that's also one aspect of infrastructure that, could see an impact based on unrest uh, due to the election. Mm-hmm. I think there was even anecdotal reporting of truck drivers or delivery workers refusing to go into some areas affected by social unrest. This is in Minneapolis or in uh, Portland as well. And that's that's a trend we could see increasing as, as if and when social unrest does occur in response to this election. Well, Chaz and Chop are just the perfect examples of that where you had, uh, you know, left-wing groups decide to take over an area of you know multiple blocks of the city and the you know police were chucked out you had businesses who were trying to operate through that who just couldn't operate um, and it wasn't just within that chas and chop area which was impacted it was the surrounding areas as well and businesses who were reporting saying that they've lost thousands and thousands of dollars in business because this autonomous zone had been created there so you know if there is another Trump presidency, I think we can see an increase in these autonomous zones attempting to be created, therefore having an impact on the infrastructure of that area. Um, and what you did see was in within Chaz and Chop, um, businesses actually hiring security guards to come into the area armed to actually protect their businesses as well as protect residences. So I think if we do see a growth in autonomous zones, you're going to see an increase in the security industry in the, in the US as well to actually protect businesses as well as individuals and their residences. I think for other, for other industries, there might be a depending on the result of the election, but say if Trump were to be elected and regulations on certain um, areas where oil and gas uh, are now able to go or anything like that, we might see environmental groups taking action against those that, that type of infrastructure we've seen with uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline in South Dakota. We've seen it by Bridge in Louisiana uh, where protesters try to take direct action to block construction or block or damage and vandalize a pipeline. So that's also kind of another sector with infrastructure that could be at risk depending on the result of the election and with if those policies uh, are implemented. And do you think it's going to be Democrat-run states that are going to be more impacted than Republican because the Republicans will take a harsher stance against these sorts of activism? I think it's hard to, to gauge because the pipelines run through both types of states, uh, whether it be natural gas or oil pipelines. But we have seen, uh, based on anecdotal reporting and based on precedents, states where we've seen these protests like the Dakota Access Pipeline or Louisiana, where um, certain lobby groups uh, have created these laws and worked with the legislator to pass harsher laws and declare certain things like oil pipelines as critical infrastructure to where if 
uh, protesters block or vandalize uh, this type of infrastructure, then they face harsher penalties. Uh, So the goal was likely to pass these laws in order to reduce the likelihood of protests because people might not want to take the risk of facing uh, harsher penalties uh, due to what they deem a legit protest. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think it's in Republican states, we've seen action taken by state legislatures to pass harsher laws. Um, I, I can't say for sure for different democratic states, but when you, when you think of where the pipelines pass and maybe how much of a percentage of revenue for that state, uh, it contributes, um, democratic states might look in favor of passing harsher restrictions to try to not target, uh, critical infrastructure, which brings revenue to those states. Mm-hmm. So we've covered step one, which is defining the environment, and step two is defining the environment's effects. So as part of this step, what we're going to look at is the key locations that we think are going to be impacted by the election, as well as the outcome of the election, as well as looking at the groups that we think are going to play a key part um, as part of the election and potential activism and violence that we see after that. Um, An interesting study from, it was part of the 2020 Back to Normal Barometer. Um, So they asked the question, uh, I think it was about 2,000 participants, um, how much do you agree with the following statement. I'm concerned that the US could be on the verge of another civil war. And the results are pretty stark. So strongly agree was 40%. Somewhat agree was 21%. Somewhat disagree was 16%. And strongly disagree was 23%. Another question that they asked um, was in relation to the actual um, stockpiling in anticipation of disruptions. So they asked the question, do you plan on stockpiling or have already stockpiled food and other essential goods in anticipation of social unrest tied to the election and or resurgence of COVID-19? And it was yes, 52%, no, 48%. So 52% of those 2,000 people had already started to stockpile goods. And then the last question was, um, a lot, among those who have or are going to stockpile, what is the reason for your stockpiling? Now, 58% was in relation to a resurgence of COVID-19, 23% was political unrest tied to the election, and 19% was social unrest tied to racial concerns. So straight off the bat, what do we think? Is there going to be another civil war in the US? path towards extremism is accelerated. Through I think there's just too much. Actually shot the white wing and protest. Not to say the point in their return. Vandalism and you've got another group who actually support them with umbrellas who 